Jewish audio on Kaban.org. Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome. We're about to begin the third portion of the portion of Kiseitze. It's a uh, lengthy one. Chapter 22, verse 8. Very interesting law. The law which deals with the obligation of a Jew to make sure that his house is safe and that his house does not present danger to visitors, to guests, to residents. Kisivne bayis chodosh, when you will build a new house and you'll have a flat roof as they had once, because the type of pitched roofs that many of us have today doesn't call for people hanging out on the roof like they did years ago. They probably still do in Brooklyn on the apartment houses on the long, hot summer nights. You go upstairs on the flat roof, you take your beach chair, and you sit, and uh, you dream about the day when maybe there'll be air conditioning one day. So uh, that's what happens on flat roofs. But on pitched roofs, people don't usually hang out on pitched roofs. But it was commonplace that people had flat roofs. So the mitzvah is that you have to have a parapet, a gate, a fence, a barrier around the roof. So that you not bring blood into your house, God forbid. If someone who will fall will fall from it, you will be held liable, contributing to this accident. You can get sued for creating a situation which is a dangerous situation. Especially in America, somebody trips on your sidewalk in America, they sue you. Eight, Rashi, Kisivne, Bayis Chodosh. This is juxtaposed to yesterday's portion, which talks about the mitzvah of sending the mother bird away before you take the baby chicks or the eggs. Im kiyamta mitzvah shiluach hakan, one mitzvah leads to another. If you fulfill the mitzvah of sending the mother bird away from the nest, seifcha, as a reward, the end will be, livnez bayis chadash, that you'll merit to build a new house, usikayim, and you'll get to perform another mitzvah. Mitzvah's maka, the mitzvah of putting a fence, a gate around your roof. It's a good thing when you build a new house. It means that the economy is good, real estate is good. Shemitz, construction is good. Shemitzvah, geireres mitzvah. The rule is, the principle is, that mitzvahs are like dominoes. One mitzvah brings another. Visagia, and then you'll come to the next mitzvah, the kerem. You'll be able to have a vineyard. Besod and a field of and beautiful garments, and you'll be able to perform the mitzvahs involving the vineyard and the field and the beautiful garments of not mixing two species together, as we're going to learn today. The Medrash Tanchuma says that this is the lesson from the juxtaposition of these portions that one mitzvah leads to a situation enabling us to perform another mitzvah and another mitzvah and another mitzvah. Makeh is goder, sobib lagog, is a fence around the roof. 
guarding what is in it. Very famous Rashi, very famous subject. It should say, if a man will fall. Why does it say, that the fallen one falls? And this is a very interesting theological question. God runs the world. Life and death. Life and death is in the hands of God. People don't just fall off roofs. Everything is bashert. So somebody can say, hey, if it's bashert, if it's destined that this guy should fall off the roof, then why am I being held liable? Because I didn't put a gate up. It's God's business. Talk to God. On the other hand, if everything is determined by God, then why do I need to put gates up? And why do I need to be careful? The answer is it's a combination. It's true that obviously it was bashert, it was predestined for this guy to fall off the roof. But it doesn't have to be your roof. You have to see to it that his death doesn't come about through your roof. Let it come about through someone else. Because when something good has to be done, Hashem enables a good person to say, Ooh, let me do the good. And that's the way it works. When a good thing has to be done, for example, it's destined for someone who's in trouble to get charity. So Hashem says, okay, who wants to do a good deed today? And all the good people say, ooh, ooh, me. And Hashem says, okay, you can do it. But you have to want to do a good deed. The opposite is true too, that when something terrible has to happen, Hashem says, okay, who wants to do something terrible? And all the terrible people line up. Hashem says, you can do it. The good person is rewarded for his good. The terrible person is rewarded for his terrible. In the, in, in the meantime, Hashem exercises what he calls destiny. Good things are brought about through good men. And terrible things, bad things are brought about through bad people. And that's why the good are rewarded and the bad are punished. And what God has in mind to come about comes about. This is very complex. We could spend a month discussing this, but we've got to move on. Verse 9. Do not sow mixed seeds in your vineyard. And here the Torah talks about the fact that it is prohibited by Torah law to mix various seeds together. This is called kilayim, the mixture of seeds. Pen tigdash hamleya hazera asher tizra, lest the fullness of the seed be forfeited, usuas akorim, together with the increase of the vineyard. And the classical example, which Rashi brings down here in nine kilayim, is chito usayda v'charzen. In this example, you have a wheat grain, a barley grain, and a kernel of grape, in one single throw of the arm, into the ground. You cover it. That is the classical example of mixed seeds. And many other mixtures are forbidden. The laws of mixed seeds have an entire tractate of Mishnah. 
very complex laws, but the theory is that we don't mix two things together as we find with animals plowing, we find with garments and so on. That's a philosophy within the mitzvah. Pentigdash ketargumai tisoe becomes unfit and abominable. Kol dovaranisavaladam, anything that's repugnant to man, because it's prohibited, it's out of the question. Bain l'shevach, whether it's good, kigain hegdash, something consecrated, bain l'gnai, or bad, kigain isur, neifel beilosh and kiddush, the word consecrated is appropriate. Consecrated does not necessarily mean holy. It means not available for use. Kimei al kigash bi kikdash ticha. Hamleya zemili b'tesefesh hazera meisiv, the increase. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You can't harness an ox and a donkey together and plow with them. The same thing applies not only to an ox and a donkey, but to any two kinds in the world. You can't harness a, uh, a cat and a dog together. But people don't plow with cats and dogs. This is not only true with plowing, but it's also true when you harness them to a wagon and they pull the wagon with some load. You're not allowed to have a donkey, an ox and a donkey together, and there are many, there is much symbolism as to why the Torah shows these two types as the example, although by no means is this the extent of the law. One reason is because you have the pure and the impure. An ox is a kosher animal, and the donkey is a not kosher animal. You shouldn't mix pure and impure, which teaches us that righteous people should not become assimilated with wicked people unless they can have influence on them. That's the shayr of a chamer. There is also a reason of sensitivity to animals, because the ox chews its cud. The donkey doesn't. So the donkey will see the ox chewing its cud. The donkey, not the smartest animal in the world, will say, Aha! Where was I when the donkey got a snack? He got a double lunch. Me, I'm hungry. So the donkey will never understand that the ox is only chewing its cud. And therefore, that is an act of cruelty to the donkey. There's a lot more to be said about this, but we'll go on to 11. Les silbas do not wear shatnes, a mixed or mingled garment, tzemer upishtim yachdov, wool and linen together. A person may not wear a garment made of wool and linen, whether the wool and linen are spun together, or even if they are just worn together, There's very, there are various interpretations, there are disagreements, between various Rishonim, but basically this is the mitzvah of shatnes. We have to make sure that the clothing we wear are not made of a mixture of wool and linen. Shatnes loshen eruv, it means mixture, but Abbeseinu Pirushay, Shaya tovui venuz, fold, spun, and woven. Twelve, gedilim ta'aseloch, you shall make twisted cords, tzitzes, al arba kanfes ksuscha, on the four corners of your garment, which you cover yourself with. And here is the mitzvah that if we have a four-cornered garment, we should put tzitzis on it. 
Rashi, the juxtaposition teaches us, Gedilim Tasalach, Af Min even though this might be from a mixture of wool and linen. If you have linen tzitzis and you have to put the tcheles, which is wool, dyed blue, you have shotness. The kachsmocha makosav, therefore the Torah joins them and says, if need be, wool tcheles may be put on a linen garment. Verse 13, just to introduce verse 13, it is important for us to understand that when it comes to marriage by Torah law, there is a dual process. One is called Eirusin, and the other is called Nisuyin. At our weddings, we have that process. The first part of the chuppah is Eirusin. The rabbi makes Birchas Eirusin. The second part of the wedding is Nisuyin. We usually read the Ksuba to separate between the two. Betrothal is a good word for Eirusin. Nisuyin, marriage, is a good word for Nisuyin. What is the difference? They're both legally bound. A man and a woman enter into a state of betrothal, Eirusin, they're married. If they want to end, terminate this Eirusin, they need a divorce. If they violate this Eirusin, it's called adultery. Even though they're not married, they're only betrothed. They don't live together. But they're legally married. The second step is Nisuyin is marriage. Once upon a time, this would take place in two separate phases or stages. You would have the Eirusin, the betrothal, and then a year later, six months later, two years later, you would have the Nisuyin, the marriage. So consequently what happened would be that you'd have a marriage without a marriage. Okay, it's not so terrible. In a sense, how different is that from an engagement? A big difference. Because an engagement is not a marriage. If the engagement is violated, it's not nice. You don't make a kiddush in their honor for violating their engagement. But it's also not adulterous. Being that this situation led to adultery, our sages went and said, you know what, let's cut this out. Let's not have this in two separate phases. Let's have it in one full swoop, Eirusin and Nesuyin, which is what we do today. But we have to bear in mind that once upon a time it didn't work that way. Another point which I want to bring out is that by Torah law, if marriage is violated by wanton, intentional adultery, then that adultery can result in the death penalty. Now, it's not so simple for adultery to result in the death penalty because it has to be intentional and it has to be wanted and it has to be wanton and it has to be premeditated. There has to be witnesses. They have to warn the people and they have to tell them. And it has to be that the woman is betrothed or married. 
And if she is, then both she and the man she commits adultery with can be prosecuted, and in certain circumstances, it's possible for the death penalty to be applied. But the death penalty is never applied unless there are two kosher witnesses who say, hey, this is not permissible, this is forbidden, and they do it anyway in front of the witnesses, which is a very difficult scenario to actualize. That's some background. Now we come to 13. If a man will take a woman in marriage, and he will live with her, he will cohabitate with her, he'll be intimate with her, and he'll hate her. He'll decide that this whole thing was a big mistake. The end will be that with some law, that he'll make up a story about her. Just as we learned earlier, one mitzvah leads to another, we're learning here that one sin leads to another. He transgressed the mitzvah not to hate somebody, and he hates his wife. The end will be that he'll badmouth his wife and he'll make up a story. So it's best to live in peace and not to have to make up stories. And we all know that getting along with spouses is, is, is not a simple thing. That's why uh, therapists make so much money. Because, you know, marriage is a process which requires a lot of hard work. It's very easy to say, I hate my spouse, have a good day, they're a terrible person. So, the Omar, and he will say, this is the scenario he describes here. He comes to the courts, and he says, So, Isha, I married this woman, and when I came to be intimate with her, and she's not a virgin. And therefore, he's suggesting that she may have committed adultery during betrothal, which is serious stuff. It's not just that she's not a virgin. Very important lesson in 14. Being that the verbiage here is, he says to the court, this woman, this teaches us that she has to be present. You cannot ever go to court about an issue where the litigant is not present. Because it's not so simple for a person to wantonly lie in front of another person. Obviously, people do it every day. But... To go ahead to court and speak behind people's backs is not something that the Torah tolerates. Now, people used to marry young girls. The girl usually was a young kid, very often represented by her father. And there are two possibilities. Either it's true or it's not true. So the fa- her father and mother take and they take the token of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate, which means that they defend their daughter from this attack. There is no token that they can bring, but they defend or not. Fifteen, let her parents who raised her, let 
them be put to shame if this is true. So here is the way it comes down. 16. And the father of the young lady says to the elders, meaning the court, as beating Asatili Shazelisha, I gave my daughter to this man as a wife by Yisno Eho, and he hated her. Sixteen, this teaches us that in this court setting that the girl should not speak before her father and she should allow her father to speak for her. Seventeen, the father goes on to say, who some Alila's dwarim. He made up a story. Lamer saying, what's the story he made up? He said, we didn't find... Virgin, I didn't find that your daughter was a virgin. And this is the proof that my daughter is a virgin. And they spread the garment before the elders of the city. That's why so many times in Time magazine and in Newsweek, they talk about the garment, the marriage sheet. That's not what this talks about. A marriage sheet doesn't prove anything. That there's blood on the marriage, that's not what he's talking about. Says Rashi, what is he talking about? What's this garment that they spread out before the court? 17. This is a euphemism. It's an expression. They have to make the matter clear as a white garment with blood on it. Which means they investigate. If they find that the guy made up a story because he has no way to back it up, 18, and the elders of the community, meaning the court takes this man, and they give him lashes. Why? Because he was motzi shemra, because he spread lies about his wife. He can't back up his story. 19, and they'll find him, a lot of money, a hundred silver shekels. And they'll give the money to her father. Again, she's a young kid. Because he spread bad rumors about a young virgin. And we force him to keep her as a wife as long as she wants to. And she will remain his wife if she wants to. This becomes, pardon the expression, a Catholic marriage. He can never divorce her. He has no right. In general, a man can divorce his wife. A woman can say, I want to divorce. Jews are not Catholics. Divorce exists. Not in his case. He lost the right of divorce. That's what we call a Catholic marriage. That's if it was a lie. But 20, what if it was true? There was no virginity. What does it mean? How do we know? Very important, Rashi. How do we know 20? There's only one way we know. If witnesses come, and they say, we saw her commit adultery. We warned her and her lover. We said, hey, you're betrothed. It's not kosher. 
You can't do that. And they said, we don't care. Shazon Sola Achar Edison. There are witnesses. See, again, the Time Magazine and the Newsweek, they never studied this Rashi. There are witnesses who saw them commit wanton, intentional adultery, and they ignored the warning that this is forbidden. That's how we know. 21. In that case, this is a rare case of real biblical adultery. Why is it rare? Because generally speaking, when witnesses come and they say, eh, eh, then people don't usually commit adultery in front of witnesses. They take the young lady out of the door of her father's house, and they stone her with stones, and she dies along with her lover. Because she did a want deed within Israel, to commit harlotry in her father's house, not as a single girl. If she committed harlotry as a single girl, it's not considered harlotry. Then she had what we call premarital sex. It's not kosher. It's not permissible, but it's also not liable. What are we talking about here? We're talking about adultery because she was betrothed. You'll remove that which is evil from amongst you. 21 Rashi, Al Pesach Beisavia, Reu, Jack, Gidulim Shegidaltem. We say to the parents, look at the tzatzke that you raised. Anshi'ira, Bemaimit Kalanshi'ira, in the presence of all the people. Lizne's Beisavia, Kamei Bebeis. As if she did it in the house. Another scenario. Ki Yimotse Ish, Sheikhivim Isha, Ba'ulaz Baal, if a man will sleep with a woman who is married to a man, Adultery, a man sleeps with a married woman. Again, if there were witnesses who warned them and saw them, then they are taken to court, they could be prosecuted. Remember the principle that any time a court brought about a death penalty more often than once in 70 years, they were considered a murderous court. It's very difficult for a Jewish court to actualize a death sentence. However, the Torah believes very strongly in the deterrent factor. They can both be prosecuted for the death penalty. Both the man, who slept with the woman, and the woman, and remove the evil from Israel. 22. This excludes any type of unnatural intimacy to which a woman derives no pleasure. This is not something that can be prosecuted technically. So they get off on a technicality. This includes anyone who would commit adultery with her after him. You can't say, hey, she already committed adultery, good morning, then she is not really considered a married woman anymore. doesn't work that way. If ten people commit adultery with her, they are all liable. Including the embryo. What if they find out she's pregnant? And they condemned her to death. You don't listen to the people who say, let her give birth first. Because the death penalty has to be 
the execution has to take place. 23. Here's another interesting portion, and this is the portion of rape. There's an important principle. The principle is that rape, in a sense, is very much like murder. If we, God forbid, see a woman being raped, then we have to do everything we can to help her. We have to do everything we can to defend her, even endangering our life. The question is, how do we know when it's rape and when it's consensual? And this is a big question today. Today, in the legal system, it's a big question. Was it rape or did she consent? Or, in in modern terms, uh, does no mean no or does no mean yes? And all the big questions of today's legal system. So here, we have to remember one thing. There can never be a death penalty unless there are witnesses. Nevertheless, we talk about rape, seduction, and consensual intimacy. 23. If there will be a young woman betrothed to a man, guys, you have to stop walking back and forth, okay? In or out. Thank you. If there will be a young woman betrothed to a man, so they're married, even though they're not living together because they didn't go through the second phase yet. And a man found her in the city, and slept with her. So what is this? At this point, the assumption is that it's consensual. She was betrothed, she met a man, and they had relations. So Rashi points out, this is a very delicate subject, that even though we never blame the victim, rape is rape, and seduction is seduction, and consensual is consensual, nevertheless the Torah does teach modesty. And the Torah says that a person has to take responsibility for their actions as well, although it doesn't translate into legal, into legalities. So Rashi tells us that a woman has to be careful where she goes. It, she's not held responsible, but she does have, she does have to be careful. Make sure you don't have a breach in your house, because the breach, the open door, invites the thief. Had she not been running around God knows where, late at night, had she been in a responsible place, perhaps this wouldn't have happened. Again, it doesn't change the law because we never blame the victim, but still people have to take responsibility for themselves. That is the lesson in this delicate, delicate subject. There's a lot more to be said, but we're on a schedule. Verse... 24, so again, there are witnesses. You take both of them to the gates of that city. Of course, this means that you take them to court to prosecute them. The witnesses come. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city. And the man, 
because he had a relationship. He humbled the wife of his neighbor. And you will remove the evil. And again, it has to be a situation where there are witnesses if there's a death penalty. But what if it wasn't consensual? What if she is found in the field? What if this happens in the field? What is a field? A field is a place where there's no people. And the man forcibly grabbed her and raped her. So she is an innocent victim. Then only the man dies. Nothing, God forbid, happens to her. Don't do anything to the young lady. She has no reason for death penalty. Key because, very important verse. Just as a man will stand up against another man and murder him, you don't blame the victim. Cain, Hadover, Hazer. Rape is exactly the same thing as murder. She was a victim. Don't blame the victim. Rashi, ki kasher yokum, lefipshutiz el mishmois. This is the simple meaning, ki anusahi, because she was forced. Ovechoska omadalea. And with force he stood up against her. Kodamay medal chaveri lahorge, like a man who stands over another man to kill him. Our rabbis say that this also teaches us many other things brought down in Gemara Sanhedrin. 27. Why are we going to assume this is rape? Because he found her in the field. This betrothed or married woman, we assume she cried out. But there was nobody to hear her. So therefore, he is a rapist. And being that he raped a married woman, there's also the death penalty involved. She is a victim. 28. Now what happens if there is no adultery? She is an unattached, unmarried woman, albeit a virgin. Usfosa. And he grabbed her and slept with her. And they were found. Again, this could also be in various situations. He could have raped her or he could have seduced her. 29. She was not married, so there's no adultery here. But still, he did a terrible thing. He raped a, a, a young lady. So, he has to first pay a large fine of 50 silver shekels. And if she and her family is interested in this marriage, she's not forced to marry him. If she's interested, then then she shall be his wife. Tachas Asherina, because he humbled her. Again, a Catholic marriage. He may not send her away all of the days of his life. Why? Because the Torah says, I want to ask all the children not to run back and forth again, please. 
The door makes a lot of noise. Please do not run back and forth. Thank you. He may not divorce her. And if she wants to marry him, then she has all of the rights of being his wife. And he has to provide her with food. He has to provide her with clothing. He has to provide her with intimacy and all of the obligations of a Jewish marriage. Of course, we're learning Chumash and Rashi, and this is a big portion, so we keep moving. There are myriads of details to every one of these laws, which we don't have the luxury to go into. 23. A man may not marry his father's wife, nor may he uncover the skirt or intimacy of his father. This is an example where there can't be a legal marriage. This refers to a widow waiting for his father, who is the brother of her dead husband, But this was already mentioned. This was he was already admonished because of the nakedness of your father's brother. She had to have been the wife of his father's brother. And this becomes a second transgression. Place the next mitzvah that a biblical mamzer should not enter into the community of Israel. What is a mamzer? What is a biblical bastard? Not a child who is born out of wedlock. That's not a mamzer. A child born out of wedlock, if this child has a Jewish mother, is Jewish. A mamzer is a child who is the result of a forbidden marriage. Either a marriage which is adulterous or a marriage which is similar to this one, which is within a close family relations. What's the word I'm looking for? In- incestuous. Thank you. That a mamzer is only the result of a forbidden relationship that results in the punishment of the cutting off of the soul. And generally speaking, in these type of incestuous relationships, there's always this punishment. And here we segue to verse 2, that the primary function of marriage is intimacy. If people are unable to engage in intimacy then the Torah does not prescribe marriage for them. That a man whose testicles or whose private parts are crushed, they should not enter into the community of God, meaning enter into marriage, because they can't function in marriage. Where the testicles are mutilated or crushed. Where the membrum is cut. And the semen doesn't flow. It trickles or drips. But in any, way, in any event, this man cannot be a normal husband. And therefore, he should not marry into the Jewish people. It's not appropriate. Marriage is not for him. Complicated law. A lot of details. But that's the principle. Verse 3, mamzer The child of an incestuous or adulterous relationship 
should not marry a regular Jew. They have to marry another mamzer. Gam deir asiri, up to the tenth generation, or even the tenth generation shall not enter into the assembly of God. What does it mean? It doesn't mean they can't come into the synagogue. It doesn't mean they can't be a member of the federation. What it means is they can't marry a Jew. They have to marry a fellow mamzer. They can't marry a non-mamzer Jew. They cannot marry a Jewish girl or vice versa. Next halacha for There are two nations, Ammon and Moab. Who were Ammon and Moab? They were the sons of Lot's two daughters with whom he committed incest. And they had sons. One was Ammon and the other was Moab. These Ammonite and Moabite people, and specifically this is interpreted as men, the famous story of Ruth the Moabite, where the court ruled that being that she was a woman, it's okay. But the male Ammonites and Moabites should not marry Jews, even the 10th generation, should eternally not enter into the community of God. Rashi, again, it means to marry. Five, because they did not come and meet you with bread and water as they should have. As you came out of Egypt, they are your cousins. They should have met you with bread and water. Instead, they charge you up to Gezoo. Furthermore, and then they went and hired the services of Bilam, the son of Baor Mipser, from Apser, Aram Naraim, to curse you, the famous story, which resulted in the relationships between the Jews and the Moabite women and the Midianite women, which brought about the Poor idol worship. Rashi al because they gave you advice to cause you to sin. When you were in a state of exhaustion, therefore, I don't want you engaging with them. Now, when it came, the big question of whether Ruth, the Moabite, could become a Jewess and marry Boaz, the halacha was determined, in fact, that this applies to men, because they had the deciding power whether to greet the Jewish people with bread and water. The women didn't have an opinion. It was before women's suffrage. So the women, therefore, are permitted to convert and to become Jews and to marry Jews. Verse 6, And God, your God, did not want to hearken to Bilam. This is a famous verse, which is part of the prayer of Rosh Hashanah. Because Hashem did not want to listen to Bilam, he transformed his curse to a blessing. Because Hashem, your God, loves you. There's a strong love of God to the Jewish people, and therefore Bilam's curses became tremendous blessings. And therefore, they cursed. They didn't welcome you with bread and water. The fact that God made it blessings doesn't make them any nicer. Don't seek out their peace or their prosperity. Forever and ever there's to be separation between the children of Israel and the Midianites and the Moabite men. End of
portion 